0: The following is a sermon from Park Church in Denver, Colorado. More information and resources can be found online at parkchurch.org. Good morning. Our scripture reading this morning is from Psalm 137. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, there should be one in the pew back in front of you. You'll find today's reading on page 488. If you don't own a Bible, please take one home as a gift from Park Church. Again, we're reading from Psalm 137. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung up our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs, And our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you. If I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy, Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. This is the word of
1: the Lord. That's in the Bible. So, uh, what a, a, like Jason used the word jolting, what a beautiful thing to be able to celebrate a baptism today. To celebrate that is incredible to see God giving life. And then to take time this morning and work through the Psalms as we've been doing for 12 years and come across a Psalm like this is, to say the least, uh, for many in the room, uncomfortable. It's an uncomfortable Psalm. Uh, Maybe for some of you, disturbing would be a word that would be like, closer to home for you emotionally when you hit that last line, especially um, in Psalm 137. And so we have some options as human beings when you come to the Word of God and you come across uh, uncomfortable things that maybe are a little bit disturbing for you. Uh, One, you can just move past them like they're not there and try not to think about it, uh, which is what a lot of us do, whether... Kind of consciously or subconsciously, we tend to gravitate towards the areas of Scripture and the passages of Scripture that really kind of make us feel encouraged and warm and give us a little, you know, boost of encouragement for our day, whatever we think we need. Um, and so we take passages that are uncomfortable and we don't like to spend time thinking about them. And so you could do that. We could kind of just move past it. Uh, or I could just preach the first few verses and skip verse nine. Um, it's not what we'll do, but we could. Uh, the other thing we we could do is decide this shouldn't be in the Bible, and we can stand here as 21st century Denverites and put ourselves like over the scripture that's been a part of the people of God for the past you know two millennia. Really, this kind of Psalm for the past at least maybe 2,500 years, and we can decide, nah. This, this maybe worked with other cultural sensibilities. It doesn't work for us. We'll either reject that particular psalm or we'll reject the Old Testament or maybe we'll take the whole Bible as a whole and just say, if this is in the Bible, I don't trust the Bible and we just push away from it. That's another option and a lot of people will take those routes. In fact, uh, those routes would be appealing to most of us in the room at, at one point or another. Hey, I'd rather not think about it, or I just want to push away from it altogether and reject it outright. Um, but as a church family, what we've decided to do as we work through the Bible is when we get to challenging places to lean in, uh, we really do believe that the Bible is the word of the Lord. That we said, and we say every Sunday, this is the word of the Lord, and we all say, Thanks be to God. Uh, the thanks be to God might have been like less hearty uh, today at the end of a psalm like that, but it's still, we believe the word of the Lord. And as such, we believe it's profitable. Uh, that means it's actually helpful for us to understand. But to be, to be fair, this uh, finding the profitability of passages like this can be a little more challenging when we feel so distant And it feels so uncomfortable. And so what we're going to do today is is kind of lean in with two convictions. One, this is a, a real psalm written by real human beings in a real particular scenario. And so we need to work hard to understand that. It's real human beings that have faced incredible grief, incredible loss, incredible injustice and evil. And they're processing honestly. It's real humans that wrote this psalm. Second, it is really the word of the Lord, and as such, it's profitable. And in the words of Jesus, all of the scriptures, including the Psalms, point to him in some way. And so we've been, for the past 12 years, trying to work through the Psalms one by one by one throughout our summer times, saying, how does this help us understand Jesus? How does it help us understand what it means to be the people of God? And how does it shape the way we approach following Christ here and now in in our world? And so here's our goal today. Um, Our goal, first of all, is not to make you comfortable. It's not my goal today, uh, is to make you comfortable. I have to like consciously decide that. Like I'm not going to, I'm not going to try to like pull away from the discomfort of this passage. We're going to just be up front about the discomfort of it. And so what is it? It's one, to help you understand how this psalm emerged from a real people in a real particular situation, in the original author, in the original audience. What was going on in the psalm? Second, to understand how do we make sense of a psalm like this in the light of who Jesus is, his teachings, his example, and the teachings of the early church that taught us things like love your enemies and do good to those who persecute you. Those kinds of things. How do we make sense of them together in a way that helps us understand Jesus? And my my conviction is, and as I've even spent time in the psalm over the past couple weeks, that when you understand the justice of God and the mercy and love of God, you see a picture of Jesus that's stunning. We live in a world where people tend to want one or the other to some degree and fashion, and maybe different things in different circumstances. We want mercy, love, grace, kindness, compassion, or we want justice, truth, authority, you know, direction. And in God's word and in the person of Jesus, you see these things come come together with such compelling beauty. I think in ways that actually resonate with the human experience, that resonate with our hearts and our core longings for the world. And so I'm going to pray that the Holy Spirit would guide us uh, it is definitely a, a, is a bold and powerful statement, uh, especially there at the end of the psalm. And so I, it might land on people in different ways. I'm gonna pray that the Holy Spirit would help you to lean into the goodness of God's word, even, and maybe especially when it's difficult. And so let's pray for help from the Holy Spirit. Um, Jesus, we are so grateful that we're not alone today. Oh, what a joy to, to be living in a world where you have promised to those who follow you that you are with us all the time. That as we unpack your word, we don't have to unpack it as like a distant, ancient document, but we can unpack it as something that's been inspired, breathed out by your Holy Spirit. And we can trust that your Holy Spirit can help us, each one of us, as we're trying to understand your word. We're trying to follow you, trying to know who you are, trying to know what it means to be your people in this world. Trying to understand who you are, what you've promised, what you've done, and what you will do in the future. So I pray your Holy Spirit would guide us this morning. Would you help us to see your glory and your goodness in both your justice and in your mercy and your compassion, that we'd be a people that learn to reflect that with a heart of justice in the world, a heart for justice in the world, and a heart of incredible mercy, grace, and compassion. And so would you do that among us, Holy Spirit, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. I love that verse. That's a fun one. Here's another one. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek... Turn to him the other also. I don't like that one as much, personally, but it feels to me like it would fit with cultural sensibilities. Forgiveness, grace, that'll preach. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Again, compelling. These are all words of Jesus that we could talk about, we could unpack, and, and they would land on us, maybe with some conviction, right? As much as we might like the way it sounds, living some of that stuff out, loving your enemies, praying for those who persecute you. If somebody hurts you, don't retaliate, but actually offer yourself again in love like Jesus gave us an example of what that looked like in his own life. The sacrificial love that didn't repay evil for evil, but responded with humility, compassion, grace, and sacrifice. That stuff's easy to talk about. When we get to a passage like Psalm 137, Verses 8 and 9, it feels different. And I'll read it again. You're like, I would rather you not, but we will, anyways. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be when he repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rocks. Uh, this series we're working through is called Christ in the Psalms. And so what we need to try to do is understand how a psalm like this, Psalm like 137, which is deeply uncomfortable and disturbing, how how we understand how is it that it points to Jesus? How is it that it helps us understand who God is and what he's like? And again, my, my sense is when we understand it in its original context, it does not lose its sting. It does not lose its bite. It does not lose its discomfort. But maybe there might be a little more compassion for the experience from which this song arose and a greater sense of the justice of God that this song ultimately is anticipating and longing for. And so what we need to start off with Here to kind of dive in is a little bit of background, what's going on in this psalm, specifically what kind of psalm it is, what's going on kind of in the context historically. And then we'll work through it piece by piece. The psalm itself will move through in three movements. It breaks up into three movements. And then we'll say, how do we make sense of this kind of a psalm in the light of Jesus, his teaching, his work on the cross, his resurrection, and what it means to follow him. So that's where we're headed. Uh, But first, a little bit of background. This is an imprecatory psalm. An imprecatory psalm, it's, it's what we've kind of categorized uh, throughout history, the psalms in different categories, and, and some, one of the kind of big overarching categories of the psalms are these psalms of petition or lament, where the people of God are crying out in, the, in a place of pain, often and almost always for deliverance. Occasionally, from the 60 to 70 kind of psalms of petition, the psalmist goes farther, not just to ask for deliverance, but to ask for retribution against their enemies, and those are the psalms we call imprecatory psalms. They have imprecations. And so to imprecate is to invoke evil against someone or something. And so these imprecatory psalms aren't just like people with a personal vendetta, like you cut me off in traffic, like doom on your children. Um, it's not that kind of like response. It's, it's, a, it's a broader thing. And so this imprecatory psalm is a psalm that calls for God to exact retributive justice against military enemies, in particular in the Psalms of the Hebrew people, military enemies against the people of Israel. That's what imprecatory Psalms are. There are probably around 35 of them. Uh, They have varying degrees of severity, varying degrees of imagery and heaviness and emotional weight. This morning, we get to cover uh, what is perhaps the most intense imprecatory Psalm in the Bible, or at least that last line is. That last line is, perhaps the most intense and precatory line in all of the Scripture, and we need to to sort through it. Again, this this idea of imprecation or kind of like praying that God would bring retributive justice against the enemies isn't this personal vendetta. It's not about revenge. It's not just animosity against somebody who wronged you or disturbed you. It's a response to gross, national-level, horrific evil horrific evil. So as you're thinking about it, instead of thinking, I wonder if I should pray this psalm when my roommate annoys me, or when like my neighbor is like being too noisy, think more, what would it be like to be In the Holocaust as a Jewish man or woman or child, in a space where you've watched your family get ripped out of your home, you've been marched in these death marches to a death camp, you've watched your parents or your siblings or your friends get gassed in a chamber, and you've watched that again and again. You have no recourse. You have no action you can take. You are under the thumb of an oppressive regime, and there's nowhere to turn. What do you pray then? That's the kind of environment from which Psalm 137 emerged. That's the kind of environment. It was a longing for retributive justice and an incredible place of pain. But that's not the only thing going on in the psalm. And so before we even get to that longing for justice, we're going to make our way through the psalm little by little. Uh, this psalm is in the kind of few psalms that are seen as an appendix to the psalms of ascent, which you looked at over the past year, a year or so. Uh, the psalms of ascent, which are remembering the people of Israel, their journey back to Jerusalem. And so this particular psalm is seen, is seen historically in a place where the people of Israel had experienced captivity in Babylon. They lived in Jerusalem or in Judea. The Babylonian Empire, which had been kind of rolling through civilization after civilization after civilization, conquering people, decimating tribes, uh, genocide, wiping out in ki- entire cities, men, women, children, incredible atrocities of evil as the Babylonians rolled and they're sort of like Pursuit of taking over the kind of known world from their region. As that continued to happen, in, in 587 BC, they sieged Jerusalem. They surrounded Jerusalem. And you can read about this in, in different places in the, in the Bible and Chronicles and other places. But they sieged Jerusalem. And in that place of being under siege in 586, Babylon conquered Jerusalem and leveled it to the dust. Destroyed homes, destroyed the temple, killed, raped, pillaged, plundered, abused men, women, children, took some portion of those people in a couple iterations on a march, a prison march from Jerusalem to their capital city, Babylon, where they're held in captivity in Babylon. They were in Babylon for 70 years as captives before eventually Persia through Cyrus the Great dominates and destroys and overcomes Babylon. And Cyrus decrees that the people that have been brought into captivity in Babylon can go back home. So around 70 years after 586 BC, they make their way back to Jerusalem. And as they make their way back, they come back into a city where the walls are destroyed, the temple is destroyed. Maybe they make their way back and they're seeing... almost think about like going back to a place where a tornado has just devastated an area and you're just seeing like ruins everywhere. But it wasn't this like force of nature. You saw people being killed. You saw families ripped apart. You saw loved ones stripped away. You saw devastating realities, and they're back in Jerusalem now reflecting on this experience, reflecting on Babylon, reflecting on their grief, reflecting on their losses, and they look back, and so that's the sort of situation where this psalm is emerging, and it needs to be in your mind to kind of make sense of some of the emotions that make their way into the psalm and the severity of them. So the first thing I want us to see as we walk through the psalm in particular, the first four verses, show us this this place of honest grief. This place of honest grief. Kind of invite us to this reality that we should grieve the brokenness that's in the world caused by sin. Uh, Look with me. We're going to start right there at the beginning, uh, verse one of Psalm 137. It says this, By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and we wept when we remembered Zion. They're imagining when they have brought march from Jerusalem after all of this loss, loss of loved ones, death, destruction of their temple, their whole city, their whole nation has been absolutely decimated. It feels like it's the end. They've been marched all the way to Babylon. They're in Babylon and they're sitting in these, kind of around these water canals and there are these willow trees and and they're there around the waters and it's like they sit down and just break down and and weeping. When they remember Zion, when they remember what it had been like to be in their own city with their people, with their family, singing songs, singing the songs of Zion, celebrating God's presence with them, celebrating his nearness, celebrating his care and his protection, showing love and learning his ways. They remembered something of that life. And, And as they now, that life as it was has been crushed. I think about that line from Les Mis, like the idea of like, my life has killed the dream I dreamed. Like this idea of, of like absolute, absolute devastation. The life that they had experienced has been devastated. And now they're just grieving the life that is. And all that has been lost. And they're doing it with honesty. Look at the next verse there. It says, on the willows there, we hung up our lyres. Lyres are these stringed instruments, maybe like harps or guitars of some kind, just different stringed instruments. If you didn't see the image out front on your way in, you'll see a, a tree uh, with a bunch of harps hanging from that really beautiful photography. But this idea of these instruments that were used to sing the songs of Zion, to celebrate who God is and what he had done, and his protection, his care, his redemption, what he had done to deliver them from Egypt, what he had done to bring them into the promised land, what he had done to give them the law and to, and to bring them to a place of like joy as a people, to give them a king. They had celebrated God's presence among them in Jerusalem with these harps, and now they have these harps, and they're like, no more celebration, we're hanging up the harps. There's no room for joy and song when we've experienced what we've experienced. There's no more singing songs of joy, songs of Zion while we're in Babylon. And so here's what happens. It says this, verse three. For there, our captors required songs of us and our tormentors mirth sang, sing us one of the songs of Zion. The images of the Babylonian soldiers marching them and mocking them. Hey, nice harp. Why don't you play us one of your celebration songs? I've heard you guys like to write music. Play us one of your songs. And there's like, we there's no way we're going to sing a song that celebrates the reign of God, the nearness of God, the presence of God, the goodness of God, when what we're experiencing is absolute devastation. They felt intense grief, and they hang their harps up, even in the face of the animosity and the heckling of the Babylonian soldiers. It always drives me nuts when... Um, when English translations use a word that just no English-speaking people use, like mirth? When was the last time in the past decade you've used the word mirth? Like, oh, they mirth, you know? Um, just they're, mo- they're laughing and mocking them, and they're not gonna, the Israelites are not gonna play that, that game. They're gonna sit in the grief. Again, we're invited in this kind of a space to actually grieve the brokenness that's in the world caused by sin. What they're doing is they're reflecting They're they're reflecting on an experience in Jerusalem. Maybe they're idealizing it in, in in a little bit. Even the experience in Jerusalem over the past couple hundred years have been marked by a lot of brokenness and pain in their own life. But they're longing for life in the presence of God, this idea of the way the world ought to be. They're kind of remembering what is it like to live in the, Remember what it's like to live in the presence of God and the, and the joy of his nearness and his care among his people, worshiping and rejoicing and living life together and learning how to be light and learning how to follow his ways and his goodness. We remember that. And as we remember life there and we look at life here, it brings incredible grief. And this is an emotion that's in the heart of every human. You have in your heart a sense of the way the world ought to be. You have a sense of it. You've tasted it every little glimpse of joy, every little moment of delight, every little experience of love, every time you see justice and compassion and generosity, every time you you experience laughter and nearness and friendship, every time you experience intimacy in a relationship and faithfulness and grace and forgiveness, it's a sense of like that's the way the world ought to be. And every human has a sense of that to some degree. Every human has a sense of it. But that sense of the way the world ought to be is not the way that the world is. And every human being has a sense of that. You have, in those relationships that are marked by love, there's also resentment and frustration and tension and disagreement and argument. In the experience of watching kids laugh, you also watch kids cry and see kids experiencing abandonment and pain and devastation, maybe in your own experience. Everywhere you see like incredible acts of generosity and justice, you also see acts of injustice, inequity, pain, oppression that permeates our world. You have this sense of this longing. And so when you remember the way it ought to be, and then you experience the way it it is, surely there ought to be moments of real gratitude for all those little tastes, all those little tastes of what the world's supposed to be. Gratitude, joy, there's a lot of beauty in the world. But do you also give yourself room to grieve the brokenness? Do you give yourself room to grieve it? To slow down and pay attention. Some of you are inclined to grieve it. Dispositionally, you're inclined to feel the weight of things. And maybe a psalm like this resonates with aspects of what you feel. You feel a real sadness, you feel even anger at the injustice in the world, whatever it is, and so it's gonna to speak to you. For for many people in our society, in Denver in particular, we use a lot of the delights that are available to us to actually push against the the honest kind of facing of the pain of reality. We almost have the sense that we're we're so close to getting the world the way it ought to be here in Denver with all the friendships and the restaurants and the cool things and the fun people and the mountains we're so close a little more just a little bit more and we could almost get there and then you can't and then you can't and you hit midlife and you're like this sucks you know you're just like this this and like the dream the dream dies a slow death and maybe for some people maybe some people it di- died a really fast death but you start to learn how to get honest that there's pain there's pain and what these psalms do is they give us room to, to grieve that pain. Now, for the people of Israel, that the pain was, again, incredible trauma, injustice, evil, like in, unspeakable atrocities that they had experienced. And for some people in this room, you've experienced unspeakable atrocities. And I want to be like sensitive to that space. There are also people around the world right now that are, speak, that are, that are living under unspeakable atrocities, whether it's water crises, not enough water to keep their family hydrated in healthy ways, whether it's injustice and oppression that exists in so many areas in our world, so many areas in our world, not just abroad, but for different people even here that don't feel the realities of justice. And to learn how to be honest about that and not have to wash over that and to grieve that, to lament that, to weep, to sit down and just weep, weep over it is important because it reminds us that the world is not yet as it ought to be. And it pushes us to start thinking about what needs to be done to, to bring healing into the world. And if we start thinking about that, we have to start thinking, well, what went wrong in the world? What needs to be fixed? Is it just a sort of surface level, like if we can just get everybody to behave right, everything will be okay? Well, that's been a problem for all of human history. So, so what's, what went wrong? What went wrong? Well, in the biblical narrative, what went wrong is humanity rejected the reign of God. And we are exiled east of Eden. And in this experience east of Eden, we build lives, we build families, we build cities and civilizations that are corrupted by sin. There's a guy named Cornelius Plantinga Jr. who wrote a whole kind of like thesis on, he's a seminary professor He was at Calvin College uh, for a while, but he wrote a thesis on sin and he, he referred to sin as the vandalization of shalom. There's this idea that shalom is the way the world ought to be, and this kind of perfect harmony, the webbing together of God, humanity, and creation in perfect harmony, the, the world you want it to be. And then that world you long for, that shalom has been vandalized by the way we've rejected the reign of God over us. We've sought to live life on our own, bring division into relationships, even division between humanity and creation itself, even our own bodies and the material world subjected to corruption. It's been vandalized. And so all over the world, you can see tastes of the beauty that was intended that have been vandalized by the realities of, of sin and our own rebellion against God. And so if you're saying, like, what, what's, what can be done as we grieve this brokenness? Is it just like pull ourselves up by the bootstraps and, and we have to realize that The the fundamental issue is that we've been separated from the God of life, the God of justice, the God of rest, the God of security, the God of hope, the God of generosity, the God of joy, the God we are made to find life in. We've been separated from him. And so the people of Israel, even as they make their way back into Jerusalem 70 years after the exile, they look around and the temple is in ruins. It's destroyed. And they're wondering and they're waiting and they're reflecting on their own life as a people, or even in the promised land, they had pushed away from God's wisdom and his reign and essentially like re Recapitulated or relived the story of Israel, or the story of Adam and Eve in the garden. They relived it in, in the promised land. They rejected God's reign, and they experienced exile. And so now they're back in Jerusalem, and, and, they're, and they're saying, all right, where is true joy found? And look at what he says in the psalm, the next passages. How shall we sing the Lord's song in this foreign land, back in Babylon? And now as they're back, they say, if I forget you, O Jerusalem, if I forget that... that You are my joy. Being in the presence of God in Jerusalem is my joy. Let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I don't remember you. If I don't set Jerusalem above my highest joy. When they're talking about Jerusalem, they're not just like talking about like, I love Denver. It's such a cool city, cool architecture, fun design, great infrastructure, great opportunities, great economy. I love Jerusalem. It's like my thing. It's about the presence of God. It's about the presence of God. And what they're saying is, here we are, we're back. And and if we kind of begin to just build a life apart from you, apart from your presence, apart from your nearness, don't let me sing my songs of joy. Don't give me joy apart from you. Don't let my hand play that harp. Don't let my voice sing those songs if I forget that you are my joy. I think this is a powerful prayer for our culture. For us, Park Church, here and now, you and I, like this this is a powerful prayer for us. To say, if I start trying to build a life of joy and satisfaction and start getting content with, with the house I'm in, the friends I have, and all these things, and I don't mean content like grateful and peaceful and not longing for more, but like satisfied with a life of stuff without the presence of God, please disrupt me. I don't want to settle into a life and get comfortable, kind of lulled to sleep with a life of comforts and pleasures and, and distractions when I forget about you. I want you to be above my highest joy. Think, to think, think about the thing that gives you the most joy in life. And the psalmist is like, God, if I don't put you above that, if I don't put you above that, like start disrupting. Start poking holes in my attempts to build a life apart from you. Uh, we get to work through Ecclesiastes for 12 weeks this fall, which is going to be a fascinating adventure um, for us. Uh, and that's essentially what the author of Ecclesiastes is doing, is just poking holes in all the ways we can try to chase joy apart from the presence of God and his reign. And what, that's what they're asking here in the psalm, is, is, is disrupt me if I forget that you are my true source of joy. It reminds me of what David prayed in Psalm 73, uh, where it says this, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Saying, what is there on earth that I desire besides you? I've chased things, I've longed for things, and I've found that your steadfast love is better than life, anything. So if I have you, you are enough. You are enough. And so this psalmist in these next verses is, is really expressing a longing for resilient joy, a kind of resilient joy, that in the midst of even pain, even as they look at Jerusalem around them, that you can hold fast to God as the source of true joy. When you're walking through life and you're tasting the, the joy of family or friendship or Life. You enjoy aspects of your job. You enjoy a great time in the, in, in the mountains over the weekend. You're here in the city and you just get to enjoy a sunny Sunday afternoon. Man, we should rejoice in that. But the second we put that above the presence of God and we actually say God exists to give me more of that instead of that exists to give me a taste of God, we've flipped it the wrong way. We've flipped it the wrong way. It reminds me of this, this quote from Jonathan Edwards uh, that... It's just been meaningful to me for a long time. He says this, The enjoyment of God is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. To go to heaven fully to enjoy God is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here. Fathers and mothers, husbands and wives or children or the company of earthly friends are but shadows. God is the substance. They're but scattered beams, but God is the sun. These are but streams, but God is the ocean. Therefore, it becomes us to spend this life only as a journey toward heaven, as it becomes us to make the seeking of our highest end and proper good the whole work of our lives, to which we should subordinate all other concerns of life. Why should we labor for or set our hearts on anything else but that which is our proper end and true happiness? Edwards is saying, Why would you spend your life chasing the, the scattered beams? And the, and the streams and chasing these little drops in a bucket when, the, when what is offered to you is the ocean and the sun and the substance of God himself. Like, let these joys remind me, God, that you, your presence, is my truest and highest joy. And they long for that. So even in the midst of this pain, they're trying to hold fast. Don't let me forget. I'm gonna hold fast to you, and as they spend that time in Jerusalem, and they think about God's presence, as they're good, as they reflect on their grief and the pain, what emerges in the last part of the psalm is this righteous anger, this righteous indignation, bringing us this last point in the psalm that you can be honest with God about your anger over injustice, trusting that He will judge the world with righteousness, and that's what they do here. They're really honest. In these verses, you will experience an essence of what they're longing for, which is justice, but you will hear it in a tone of incredible anger, incredible anger, incredible pain. So here's what it says, verse 8 or verse 7. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites. In the Hebrew Scriptures, this kind of a line is kind of a typical courtroom language. Uh, They're appealing to God as a judge, and they're calling to the judge's attention— an experience with the Edomites that was saying, don't forget what they did to us. As you are judging, do not forget, please. We might be 70 years past it, but do not forget what they did to us. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites the day of Jerusalem, how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare down to its foundations. The Edomites were actually the descendants of Esau, if you familiar with Jewish history, you have Jacob and Esau, two sons, Abraham, Isaac. Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Esau. The descendants of Jacob become the nation of Israel. The descendants of Esau become the Edomites. And there, there's a sense of like, hey, we're not too far apart. We have the same kind of history. And there's some sort of like, man, we, we, should, we should not be enemies. But, but Edomites have made themselves the enemies of the people of Israel. And when the Babylonians came in, the Edomites saddled up with the Babylonians. They kind of joined forces with the Babylonians. And when Babylon had created a siege around Jerusalem and dominated Jerusalem in 586, the Edomites were there cheering them on, saying, Lay it bare, tear every stone down, decimate this city, crush it, bring it down to the very foundation. And Israel's pissed. Don't forget what the Edomites did. When you judge, do not forget how they cried out against us and join the Babylonians against your kingdom, against your movement to bring restoration and healing to the world through your people. Don't forget what they've done. It's like in the courtroom scene, they're appealing to the judge, don't forget what the Edomites have done. And it's like they catch a glimpse of Babylon over there and just burst out with anger. And they just turn to Babylon and say, daughter Babylon. And the idea of daughter is just kind of the idea of the city of Babylon. It's a way to reference the city itself. Oh, Babylon, daughter Babylon, doomed to be destroyed. What are they saying there? Saying God had promised that he would bring justice to those who decimated Israel, that he would eventually bring justice. And so they are hearkening back to that. Say, oh, daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, Blessed shall he be who repays you with what you've done to us. Who repays you. This is this idea of retributive justice. Saying what you did to us, when you decimated us, when you broke down our walls, you pillaged and plundered just because you wanted to expand your empire, you killed my family members, you killed my children, you separated our family, you death marched us across the, the, the world, you brought us into captivity, you wouldn't let us go, you mocked us, you jeered us. Blessed shall he be when he repays you for all you've done. When he brings justice. When he brings justice to the evil in the world. We have in our heart, in our sensibilities, even in, in our city, in our day and age, in our culture, we have in our sensibilities a category for retributive justice. Have you ever watched a movie where the, the bad guy, quote unquote, is winning? Winning? And, uh, and there seems to be no check to authority, and they're doing incredible evil and atrocities. And finally, at the end of the movie, like, some protagonist like, gives them what's coming to them, and you're just like, yes. And like, I don't know if I should be excited that that guy died or not, but I am. Like, but I am. And my kids were too. And I don't know if that's bad parenting or like, the justice that's in the heart of the human being. And maybe both. It might be both in my case. Um, but, but this sense of like justice right? You think about it, right? Every kind of, think about Aslan uh, pouncing on the white witch in the lion, the witch, in the wardrobe, and like devouring the white witch. It's an intense moment in this like kid's book. You're like, oh dang, that got like, that got serious super fast for my four-year-old. Um, and uh, as the lion like eats her face, uh, but, but even the four-year-old just like, get it. You know, maybe, maybe not, but probably just my four-year-old's. But this sense of justice, right, or uh, this might seem silly, but I think about the Wizard of Oz. All right, so in the Wizard of Oz, you've got the Wicked Witch who's like just pestering and like in, in, in all these ways is devastating and evil and this kind of personification of evil in the story of the Wizard of Oz. And when she's finally like melting and her freaky monkeys are like getting beaten, like this whole thing, there's something in this like kid's story that feels like justice. And then you watch Wicked. You're know, like, Alphaba was just misunderstood. You're like, uh, Elphaba, the, the she was just a misunderstood, you know, person, and she, the green was a skin condition, and, and the whole thing, and there's, animo- there's all this stuff. And in our culture, it's easier for us to start saying like, hey, separating people into the good and the bad isn't entirely healthy. It might feel easy. To say, there's the good guys and the bad guys, and the good guys are the guys that look like me and talk like me and value the things I do and are part of my group. And the bad guys are any of the people that oppose my group. And we can kind of sort history into these clean, tidy lines of the good and the bad. And history is not like that. There's goodness in human beings. There are degrees of evil. I'm not saying there's not like out and out evil. There's absolutely outright evil. But I think we've learned as a society that sometimes it doesn't separate into these clean, nice, and tidy categories. The good guys chasing after the bad guys, bringing justice to the world. As fun as that is to watch in a movie. We start learning that there's a story. There's pain. There's difficulties. Does that excuse the evil? No, but what we start doing is start humanizing people and we start realizing we're all not that different. We're not that different. Like there are seeds of evil in all of us. We've all contributed to the brokenness in the world, the pain, the division, the animosity. We've all done it individually, and we've all been a part of societies that lifted up values against other people. Whether consciously or unconsciously, we've been a part of a world where evil is just around and in us. It's pervasive, and there are certainly moments of incredible degrees of evil. And what the Israelites are looking back on is one of those moments of extreme evil, and they're praying for retributive justice, and they're doing it with incredible emotion, So, like, yeah, I get that, but why, 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 verse nine? Why the why bring up the little ones? Why rocks? Why that imagery? That's like so intense, isn't it? And it's still in this category of retribution. What the what the Babylonians had done and did to people groups is that kind of atrocity—killing children raping, pillaging, plundering. And as Israel reflects on that, what they're reflecting on is God will bring justice into the world. And when he does, when they pay for all that he've done, he's done, we will worship him as a God of justice. Blessed shall he be when he visits upon you the kind of evils that you did to us. Now, now does that mean that they're like waiting for God to like come and take babies and dash them against rocks? No, they're looking at history and they're looking at history and the way it would end up happening is other evil nations coming in like Persia and dominating Babylon. The evil nations being used under the weird wild sovereignty of God to bring justice against other people as people kind of wrestle in this life trying to build our society and now we're going to try to build our society. And we're going to try and dominate your society and we're going to be the best. No, we're going to be this. Put us first. No, put us first. This ongoing churn of civilization after civilization trying to like rise up against everybody else to establish ourselves as supreme. And and God, in that economy of injustice, sin, separation, pride, oppression, all of that, in that economy, we dominate each other and bring and exacerbate the pain in this world in ways that throughout history have been incalculable. If you went right now, when I was in Marungatuni last fall in Uganda, and you hear about the stories of Joseph Kony and the Lord's Resistance Army, The the abducting of children and bringing them into, brainwashing them into child soldier life, bringing and killing families and burning fields and crops in the ways that devastated that people group. And you look at a psalm like this, and a psalm like this is a longing, like bring justice into the world. We sit in a nation where the vast majority of us have tasted nothing like that. And you sit, whatever your views on American foreign policy might be, Whatever they might be, I'm not making any statement about that, but you sit in a world where those battles that bring you the ability to kind of like live your life and kind of say, well, that feels really intense. It's because that experience is so far from us because those battles are being fought in other nations across borders a long way away from us. I'm not justifying or making a judgment. I'm saying just know you sit in a space we evaluating this when it's so far from the experience that most of us have ever had, but it's not so far from the human experience that many have had. I'm going to read this uh, quote here from uh, this guy, Dennis Tucker and Jamie Grant. Well, here, I'll do, I'll do two. Um, the first one is, I'll do that one. It says, reminds us, Psalm 137 reminds us of the reality of oppressive power that exists in the world. Even today, Babylon now has many faces and goes by many names, Its presence in our world is legion, meaning many. It's all over the place. We've come to accept it as reality, as the norm. So a shrill psalm such as Psalm 137 seems oddly out of place for many of us because we have been lulled into a certain slumber that has made us accustomed to oppression in this world. But for those who live under oppression today, for those who this very day sit by the banks of the river and weep because they have hung up any thought of singing again, this psalm is far from shrill. The psalm reminds us that we should be less concerned about how this psalm fits neatly into our world and more concerned about those for whom this psalm describes their world. And I think it's a powerful statement that that longing for justice, and maybe if you've experienced incredible abuse in really devastating ways, and I, and I, I say that phrase as soon as I do, I just want to like, man, the, I want to like honor the pain in that space. But if you've felt that, you know what it means to long for justice. If you've been hurt by somebody that had authority and you felt you had no recourse of action, you know what it means to long for justice. And this psalm is a longing for retributive justice. But the psalm is more than that. The psalm is more than that. The idea of retributive justice is all over the Old Testament. We talk about lex talionis, the, the law of retribution, or of, of, of people experiencing judgment for what they've done. It's there. The, the presence of justice is all throughout the Bible. But the ultimate heart of God is not to bring retribution to us for what we've done to the world. The heart of God is to heal the world, to redeem, to restore, and to set it free. And that's why Jesus came into this world. He came into this world to actually heal the world from these kind of ongoing, perennial extensive, pervasive atrocities, and he entered into the world, into a world that was marked by injustice, religious injustices, political injustices, and corruption, world powers bringing domination, and in that space, he loved people. He was compassionate. He was gracious. He taught in his own Sermon on the Mount teachings like this, where he would say things like, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also where he taught us things like love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. How could he do that? Is he just throwing away psalms like Psalm 137? No, there are times in Jesus' ministry where he would quote imprecatory psalms. He's not throwing them away. In his own life and ministry, he was coming to bring together the justice of God and the mercy of God in a way that is absolutely stunning. But his longing for the world to experience mercy and salvation as people would return to the God who made them, return to their creator king by turning to Jesus. Jesus didn't just teach about forgiveness and love. He demonstrated it in his own life and in his own death. When he hung on the cross, when he was being crushed by the Roman soldiers, when he had been betrayed by his own people and his own kindred, when he had been abandoned by his own friends, he didn't cry out for retribution. He cried out, Father, forgive them they don't know what they're doing. Forgive them, they've been deceived. They're captives of the true enemy. They're lost, and he came to set people free. He came to redeem and rescue, and he did it by laying down his life on the cross for our sin. That in the cross of Jesus, the the justice of God, the movement of God against human sin, against all that brings pain and brokenness in the world, God moves out against it. And Jesus steps in our place so that that movement of God against human sin doesn't bring justice upon us. He steps into that place to take the penalty for our sin as our substitute, to bear in his own body on that tree the wrath of God that we as human beings deserve because of our sin. He satisfies the wrath of God. He allows in his own body to take on that penalty so that God could remain just and the justifier, the one who declares people righteous through faith, in him, that he atoned for our sin. So when we think about what God's posture is towards us, and we see Jesus, we realize that we don't have to be afraid. We sang it again and again this morning, I'm no longer a slave to fear. I'm a child of God. That's crazy. He loves me, even after all my pride and all my arrogance and all my just the dark motives and the junk in my heart that pops itself up and all these conversations and relationships, after all the ways that I've kind of seen my life and the, the negative effects in my life and, and on other people and the, my re- reluctance to come to God, how prone I am as an individual towards like, I can do this by myself and I can, I can kind of push through this and I can create a path on myself, how, how much I push away from him. And is he gonna, is he gonna come out against me? No, I see in Jesus, I'll so praise the one who paid my debt and raised this life up from the, from the grave. I get to be free. I get to know his love and walk with him, even though I've sinned against him. You do. It's a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful promise that in the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, that people can receive mercy. And it's this last thing, that we get to be a people that show love and mercy. That the gospel gives you the ability to, to love your enemies as fellow sinners who need the mercy of God. Just like Jesus did. But he didn't hang up justice. Justice will come. And so he taught his disciples to do the same. He taught his disciples to love their enemies. And his disciples did. You think about Stephen, the first martyr, who when he was being stoned by his own people, he followed the way of Jesus and said, Father, forgive them. And he looked and he saw Jesus standing, waiting for him. And he entered into the glory of the resurrection because of his faithfulness to Christ. Or you see it in Paul, who is standing there, when Stephen was stone, participating in the stoning, later repents. And he starts realizing the mercy of God towards him. And so he says something like this in Romans 12. He says, don't repay anyone evil for evil, but give thought to do what's honorable in the sight of all. If it's possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with everybody. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it's written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed them. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink, for by so doing you'll heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Because of the mercy of Christ towards people like us, we can start longing for other people to experience mercy as well. And you can actually love people, even when wronged, because you trust that God sees. He's paying attention. He cares. And justice will eventually come. But I wanna live in a world where as many people as possible, instead of staying hard-hearted towards him, come to him for mercy and forgiveness and begin to experience what many of us are beginning to experience, which is the transformative power of the love of God. That we could be people that, that hold fast to justice, but we operate in this world with love, and mercy that reflects the glory of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. And God help us to be that kind of a people. Let's pray. Now, Jesus, we need you even now. Would you guide us as we wrestle with hard things in your word? Would you help us to see your love and your justice as good news? When we want to understand your character, Father, would you help us to see Jesus the perfect image of God, the way he loved, the way he spoke truth, but did it with compassion, the way he brought authority, but did it with grace, the way he showed holiness, but also mercy, and the way ultimately he laid down his life, he entered into suffering. He was the son of suffering. He was acquainted with grief. He was crushed. He, your son, was crushed for our iniquities. Would you help us to see your character in Christ and that we'd become a people that increasingly learn to follow his way, a way that can hold fast to both love and justice and be a light in this world, we pray in Christ's name, amen. I'm gonna go ahead and ask the communion servers to make their way up. We're gonna celebrate communion. I wanna invite you to think about communion maybe with a little more depth today. Um, then maybe you might sometimes. A communion isn't just like a reminder, like I'm following Jesus, and it's not just a reminder that Jesus loves us. Communion through the broken bread and through the cup of wine is a reminder of what Jesus did to secure us in the covenantal family of God. That His body was broken on behalf of us, in place of us, as a substitute for us. His blood was shed. To bring atonement and forgiveness to us. And so when we celebrate communion week in and week out, we're remembering the the stripes, the wounds, the chastisement that he experienced on our behalf to bring us to himself. And so in a moment, I'm going to read from Psalm 53 again, uh, which we had read during the assurance of pardon. But I I want to say this is a meal that's for all who would put their faith and trust in Jesus. If you're not a Christian, we're glad you're here. And And I know today is like a heavy passage. But I think this passage, when you really slow down and think about the realities in this world, I think there is within you a longing for love, a world of love, and a longing for a world of justice. And what I would offer to you is this thought that I don't know you will find anywhere in the world or in human history, a place where love and justice come together so beautifully in the death of Christ for human sin. Laying down his life on our behalf as a demonstration of love, but also to be just and faithful, to bring justice into the world through his own life, death and resurrection, and in his promise that he will come again. We're gonna put a couple prayers on the screen here behind me to help those that are searching for truth, or maybe if you're ready to trust in Jesus, they're there to guide you. Our hope is that you would believe, but we want this to be a place where you can engage with the claims of Christianity as you're processing through it. Uh, But for all who would trust in Jesus and follow him, I'm gonna read from Psalm or Isaiah 53. Uh, where there's a picture of this coming king and what he's like and what he would do. And it says this He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. He was a man of sorrows. Jesus wept. You know that he wept. He was acquainted with grief. The idea is like gr- grief was a close friend. It was always there with Jesus. He felt the weight, he felt the pain, he felt the sadness. And he was as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. But surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray; we have turned every one of us to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is what Jesus has done to bring us into the love of Christ. He suffered on our behalf. He was the Son of Suffering to give mercy to all who would trust in him. And so, for all who put their faith and trust in Jesus, I invite you to come, take the bread, dip in the cup of wine. And remember his mercy and love towards you. If you need alcohol-free or gluten-free options, they're available in the two corners of the sanctuary.
0: Hey, thanks for listening. Park Church exists to make disciples of Jesus for the glory of God and the joy of all people. More information and more resources can be found online at parkchurch.org.
1: Take care.